All right, let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to Galatians. Galatians in our Bibles. See, someone brought me a gift tonight. We can get a lot of ice cream in that. That's a lot of shake. If I had this whole thing full for a shake before I went to bed, I would sleep like a baby. That would be great. No. <laughs> Terrible. All right. I'm going to put this over here where you don't have to look at it, but I can dream. <laughs> uh, all right. So Galatians chapter 5 is where you're at in your Bibles this evening. We're going to be finishing up the part of our study on theology. You remember the study of God, ology, the study of, and theos is a reference to God. Uh, last, uh, let's see, or a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the natural attributes of God. Can anybody remind me of some of the natural attributes of God? Um, natural attributes. I hear murmuring. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at the moral attributes of God. What's the, what's the difference? The natural attributes of God are not transferable. Okay, Those are not something that we will ever have. It's not something that we will ever be. What are some of the non-transferable attributes of God? Omnipotence. We're never going to be all-powerful. Can you name another one? Omniscience. We're never going to know everything the way God knows everything throughout all of time, before time, after time, all those sorts of things. Um, omnipresence. We're never going to be everywhere at once. Okay. Now, I'm pretty excited about heaven. There are going to be some amazing things that we're able to do, but it, we're not going to be omnipresent. So the natural attributes of God are the very nature of God's being. They are attributes that only God, and that's a blank in your hand out there, only God possesses. They are unique to God and can never be the characteristics of man, either now or in the future. God created us in his own image, but because of sin, that image was shattered. Now, I want you to keep this thought in mind throughout tonight. I almost did this, and I kind of wish I had. I was going to go buy one of those full-length mirrors, you know, and bring it out, and then I was going to take a hammer and just smack it right in the middle, but I was concerned that glass would go everywhere, okay, so we didn't want that, so I didn't do that. Some of us would call that discretion um, or conservatism, whatever we want to call that, but I wanted to, I wanted to do it because I wanted the, the picture. When we look into the mirror, what do we see? We see an image or reflection. You remember in the Old Testament when God said, and he spoke to himself, and he said, let us create man in our image. Um, God, it's always been his plan that mankind would reflect him. Okay? And I want us to think about that because we're going to look at these attributes tonight of God. And these are attributes that God wants in our lives. Okay? But yet, they're, oftentimes, they're not attributes that are, that are in us, that are in our lives. Uh, we, when we don't walk in the Spirit, by the way, they're never in our lives. But the reality is, is so when God created us in his own image and Adam and Eve sinned, that image was shattered. 
Now, if we look out in the world today, even if we look at an unsaved individual, uh, we can still, in case there's body, soul, spirit, you know, death, it's death, but you can still see, I think, to some degree, the image of God. But that's not the full picture. That's not all that God wants the world to see. But when a person is born again and the spirit of God takes up residence in that individual's life and that individual walks in the spirit, the world in which we live can actually see the Lord Jesus Christ living inside of us. But remember, when he created us, because of sin, that image was was shattered. Now, I want you to look here in Galatians chapter 5, and I want to just read a verse to us as we get started this evening. Verse 22, it's called the fruit of the Spirit, and you either have all of them or you have none of them. Uh, It's not the fruits, it's not plural, it's singular. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. That meekness is strength under control, temperance, that's self-discipline. We talked a little bit about that this morning. Against such, there is no law. Now, there are more attributes than we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, and there are more than we looked at a couple weeks ago. But these moral attributes of God are clearly visible in the lives of his children as the leading of the Holy Spirit of God is obeyed. When you and I obey the Spirit of God, God is made visible. Now, I'm, 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 I'm not meaning totally physically, but you're following along. People can better know who God is when you and I walk in the Spirit. Um, when, when the world sees a husband who's walking in the spirit, the, the world can better know who God is. When the world sees our unsaved individual or even our children, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when they see a mom walking in the spirit, when children see their mom walking in the spirit, it helps them better know who God is. Um, and so the image of God becomes clearer. Oftentimes when people look at us, they see something like the mirror that I kind of wish I had come and broken. And uh, we could stand in front of that mirror, and we might even be able to kind of see, I think that's a human being. I think that's me, uh, depending on how badly it was shattered or broken. But the image would be all distorted. And that is often the way it is in our world today. When the world looks at us, do they see a distorted picture of who God is? Confusing? Or is it clear? Is it clear? And when you and I walk in the spirit, these moral attributes of God are clearly seen in our lives. Um, Rob Bohalski, would you would you stand and would you ask God's blessing upon our Bible study and just pray for us? Lead us in prayer. And then we'll uh, we'll look at it tonight. Amen.
All right. Uh, number one in your notes, and we're going to move along pretty quickly tonight because I want to get to the last one. I want to take a little extra time with that one. We're going to move along pretty quickly. Number one, God is good. Good. God is good. His goodness. That is uh, one of his moral attributes. Now, God's goodness is not his grace. There's a difference. His goodness is not his grace. Letter A says the goodness of God can be seen in his bountiful dealing with mankind. Uh, Psalm 145 in verse 9 says the Lord is good to all. Think about that. The Lord, Jehovah, God is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. You know that no matter who it is um, who's ever walked the face of the earth, God is good to them whether they're saved or unsaved? Have you ever felt sorry for yourself about something? Come on, a little response here. Yeah, we have, right? We felt sorry for ourselves a time or two. and uh, But the reality is, is we've all experienced the goodness of God. We have all experienced the goodness of God. Um, God's goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him, by the way. One of the things that helps us not be afraid of him, and I don't mean fear him, but I mean be terrified of him, um, is that he is good. God is good. We've experienced that. Letter B says all of mankind has experienced the goodness of God. In Matthew 5 and verse 45, uh, the latter part says, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. Do you think God should do that, by the way? Are you glad he, he does that? Um, can you name some, I don't know that we ought to go there. I think we can. Can you name some men who are evil? You don't have to name them out loud. Can you name, can you think of some people throughout human history have been wicked and evil and vile and done terrible things? Was God good to them? Did they experience the goodness of God? Yes or no? They did. They experienced the goodness of God. He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Wow. God is good. Now, we've, we talked a couple weeks ago about his holiness. Uh, we've, we've talked about uh, other attributes of God, but it's amazing to me that God, and I rejoice in this, I rejoice in the goodness of God. Uh, number two in our notes, God is righteous. God is righteous. And the word righteous means that he always, he always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. Do we always do the right thing? No. We don't always do the right thing, but God always does the right thing. He is righteous. Now, as we go through this list and we talk about the goodness of God, and by the way, we could spend weeks preaching messages on just the goodness of God. We could spend weeks preaching messages on just the righteousness of God. So we are moving along here. But when, when we think about the, those, these attributes, these moral attributes of God, that he's good, we ought we be careful not to just move on. You know, we fill in the blanks and we move on. Be careful not to just move on really quickly without asking yourself the question, how am I doing in the area of goodness? Am I good? Am I doing that which is right? Am I righteous? Because these are, um, these are the moral attributes of God. God wants to see his goodness in us. He wants the world to see his goodness through us. So when we talk about omnipotence, and omniscience and omnipresence, and we can kind of sit back and we can say, wow, God is amazing. God is powerful. God knows everything. 
God is everywhere at once. And we can think like that. And wow, and, and that can be an encouragement to us because he's always with us and because he is able. And so, but we can sit back a little bit more. But when we think about these, we can not only look back throughout biblical history in our own life and say, I've experienced the goodness of God. We have to go one step further and we have to say, God wants me to be good. He wants me to do good. He wants me to be righteous. God is righteous. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, the Bible calls God a righteous judge. Um, Abraham realized that um, he could appeal to God's righteousness. And letter A says this, God always does what is right. God always does what is right. Do you remember when Abraham went to God in Genesis, the book of Genesis? And God was going to Sodom. Do you remember that? And uh, Lot lived in Sodom. And Abraham went to God. The Bible says he drew nigh to him, drew near to him, which is interesting. He goes, he gets near to God, and uh, he begins to reason with God as a man, only a man could. And uh, he basically says to, to God, if there are only 50 righteous people in Sodom, uh, wouldn't you, uh, as God, the, the righteous judge, wouldn't you do right? He says it this way in Genesis 18. He says, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to destroy Sodom, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. He's talking to God now. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a great question. Well, what's our answer to that question? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Does God do right? Yes or no? Does he always do what is right? Okay. Do you always agree with what he does? <laughs> a little lightheaded there for a moment. Now, we all, we all agree he does what is right. Mankind does not always do what is right. God always does what is right. But there are times where you and I don't always agree with what he's doing. But he always does what's right. So Abraham, he, he draws near to, to God and he says, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, um, you, you wouldn't destroy for them, would you? God says, no. And, and Abraham says, how about five less, 45? God says, I won't destroy it for 45. And then Abraham says, how about 40? God says, I won't destroy, destroy it for 40 righteous people if there are 40 righteous people in the city. And Abraham says, how about 30? God says, I won't destroy it for 30 righteous people. And Abraham says, how about, how about 20? And God says, I won't destroy it for 20 righteous people in the city. And Abraham says, how about 10? And there weren't 10 righteous people in the city. And God destroyed it. Um, God is righteous. He always does what is right. And letter B says, because God is righteous, he will always keep his promises. He will always keep his promises. Joel, do you have your Bible? Can you come on up and read something for me? It's in the book of Daniel. Okay, go ahead and turn there as you're coming. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And it'll be verse number 16. And while you're turning there, I'm going to keep talking, okay? So because God is righteous, he will always keep his promises. He can do no other. Okay, God's attribute of righteousness is one of the reasons that we can approach a holy God. When Daniel prayed to God, he, his prayer, you'll notice this as Joel reads it, his prayer was based upon the righteousness of God. 
and listen for it as Joel reads, Daniel knew that God would do what was right. And Joel, could you read from Daniel 9, verse 16? How's it coming? <laughs> Nothing like looking for verses in front of everybody, huh? I go through this all the time. Ezekiel, Daniel. There it is. Daniel 9, I think verse 16. Let me double check. because I don't want to do to you what I did to Tori. Daniel 9, 16. Okay, Joel, go for it. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and that thy people are become a reproach to all that that are about us. Yeah, they become a reproach to all that are about us. Thank you, Joel. Good job. Did you hear it right at the beginning of that prayer? As Daniel's praying to the Lord and he's asking God for his mercy, he's asking God, to do what is right, and he begins by praying, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness. Uh, by the way, that's a New Testament principle. Daniel was asking God to do something that God was inclined to do. So Daniel was in line with what God wanted to do. He understood what God wanted to do. Let her see God rewards righteousness in the life of a Christian. God rewards righteousness in the life of a Christian. When you and I do what is right, there are rewards for doing what is right. Matthew 5 and verse 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be blessed. How are you doing in the area of hungering and thirsting after righteousness? You know, uh, Josh brought me this mug, you know, and I'm looking at it here and vanilla and then goes the juices and it's phenomenal. You know, there's a, a craving that comes with all of that. But do we crave uh righteousness, doing what is right? Let me ask it in the reverse. Do we ever get sick and tired of doing what is wrong? Yes or no? Do you? I do. Oh, I think the Apostle Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the bondage? Okay. Um, yeah, we ought to hunger and crave and thirst after righteousness. I love this verse, Isaiah 32 and verse 17 says, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and the works of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. What is the result of doing right? What is the result of doing right? And he says, the works of righteousness shall be peace. The effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. You know, a marriage where the husband and wife are doing right, they can enjoy peace, can't they? The effect of righteousness is quietness and, and assurance forever. Um, the philosophy of the world today is if it feels right, do it. But God's philosophy, God's word demands that we do right because it is right. So do right. I think it was Bob Jones Sr. who used to say, do right till the stars fall. You don't just do right. No matter what, do what is right. We don't always do that, do we? No, we don't. We often do not do that. But it ought to be something that we're we're uh, we're serious about doing. Uh, number three, God is truth. 
God is truth. God is truth. I'll, I'll read that first. Godliness is doing what is right regardless of convenience, circumstances, or the eventual outcome. That's talking about righteousness. And then God is truth. Number three, God is truth. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Letter A says, God cannot lie or tolerate lying. God cannot lie or tolerate lying. In Numbers chapter 23, the Bible says this in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And the point is this, when God says something, he does it. God never lies. He always tells the truth. He always does what he says he's going to do. In 1 Kings chapter 8, and verse 56, the Bible says this, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. Then letter B in our notes, God's truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. You know, when you're doing your Bible reading, or you're maybe in the morning, or in the evening, or at whatever time it is, um, pick out some of the attributes of God in this one verse. Help me out here. What are some attributes that you see? His goodness is there. His mercy is there. Everlasting. Now that would be that would be uh, um, a non-moral attribute. But yes, that's there too. What's another one? Truth. Truth is another one. So isn't it neat? Sometimes we just read scripture and we blow right past all kinds of blessings. When we look at it, we remember God is good. God is good. I can think about his goodness and he is so merciful to me. And then my mind may go to another passage of scripture where his mercies are new every morning. You know, this is called meditating on the Lord. It's thinking upon him. Uh, and if you're anything like me, sometimes the things of life can begin to overwhelm us. And, and we could open the Bible, but maybe we can't see it or we're reading it. It's, it's coming in, but we're, it's not getting to our heart. Take time to ponder those words. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth. To all generations. Um, number four, God is merciful. God is merciful. In Psalm 136, there are 26 verses there, and all 26 of them end with, For his mercy endureth forever. Thought about starting us out tonight reading that. And every time we'd come to the end of the verse, we'd all read it together. His mercy endureth forever. 26 times. And, and what is the mercy of God? Let's, let's talk about that. What is the mercy of God? Letter A, mercy is God's compassion for the sinner in not giving us what he deserves or what we deserve. Mercy is God's compassion in not giving us what is deserved. That's mercy. In Micah 7 and verse 18, the Bible says, Who is, is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Think about that. Is there any other God like him that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. God amazes me. I'm amazed by him. 
I mean, he is holy. We talked about that. He is righteous. He always does what is right. And yet he is merciful, full of mercy. Again, the verse I just read says he delighteth in mercy. He doesn't stay angry with us forever. Why? Because he's merciful. Uh, do you do you are you always easy and quick to forgive people when they've wronged you? Some of us maybe more than others. Some of us not not very much at all. But aren't you glad God? He doesn't follow us in our pattern. But he is asking us, as we think about these moral attributes of God, in all who would be godly, we ought to, it ought, his mercy ought to be evidence or, or evident in our lives. My children ought to be able to look at their daddy and know God better because daddy is merciful. Now, if I'm going to follow the Lord, that means I also need to be just. And Ian just made a face. What does that look like? Okay. But you see, I mean, these attributes, please, let's not just go by them. If we leave here tonight and just think, wow, God is good. And he expects us to bear these attributes in our own lives. These ought to become attributes in our own lives. So mercy is caring for that which is completely helpless. Mercy is caring for that which is completely helpless. Now, this Hebrew word of mercy has the same root as the, the word of a, of a mother's womb. Same root word for mercy is the same word that's used to describe a mother's womb. And as a mother's womb sustains the life of a helpless child, so too does the mercy of God sustain you and me. I used to marvel when our children were in Cindy's tummy. You know, and it would grow, and they would roll over and kick and push. And I marveled at what God was doing inside the womb. He's nourishing a child. Um, we were the best parents ever at that stage, let me just tell you. It's been all downhill from there. <laughs> we're learning still. But just like, again, it's the same root word for a mother's womb, how it nourishes that child, that infant in the womb, uh, gives that infant everything it needs, so too does the mercy of God minister to us and nourish us as we go through this life, stumbling and oftentimes falling. You know that God takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy? Have you done anything wrong lately? Have you, uh, have you sinned against the Lord in some way? You ever find yourself crushed under the guilt of that? Ever find your, your face flushing red or with frustration? Because to, why does God why does God bear so long with us? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 147 that the Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Are we hoping in our righteousness? Are we hoping in our self-discipline? Are we, helping, are, we, are we hoping in, in our uh, plan or for our lives to do what is right? Or are we hoping in the mercy of God? Because the Bible says those that fear him, it, it, it pleases God. Those that fear him, he takes pleasure in those that fear him. But he also takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy. 
And what is mercy again? We talked about it. It's God not giving us what we deserve. God not giving us what we deserve. God, thank you for your mercy. That's what comes to my mind. God, thank you for your mercy. There is nobody else like you, God. There is no other God like you. You are holy and you do not compromise your holiness. You are true. You are righteous. Yet you love me. You love me. And even though I fail you, you take pleasure when I hope in you, in your mercy, that you'll be merciful to me. He is a, he is a marvelous, marvelous God, and I love him. Um, uh, number five, God is gracious. God is gracious. Now, if mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. A grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Can anybody quote for me Ephesians 2.8? For by grace, through faith, not yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We got verse 9 in there too. For by grace are you saved. Okay, so by grace, God gave us something that we didn't deserve. You know, when God saved me, he gave me his son and the Holy Spirit. He gave me the righteousness of Christ. These are all things I don't deserve. I'm a sinner. Uh, we talked about the flesh and the wickedness of our flesh this morning. Uh, we are, in that sense, in our flesh, well, it's no good thing, right? So we deserve death and hell. That's what we deserve. But God chose to save us, and he did it by his grace. He gave us what we do not deserve. Uh, letter A says, grace is the unmerited goodness and love of God to those who don't deserve it. Now, we have some Awana clubbers in here. Tavian, are you done with your book yet in Awana? How's it coming? Are you done? Yeah, are you reviewing yet? You're just... What? Oh, you're saying other sections. You're even going outside of things now. That's awesome. Great job. So, Tavian, when you say those sections, what do you get for saying those sections. Do you get rewards or awards? Maybe things for your vest? He does. He gets different things for his vest. And, and some of my kids have those things too. And of course, at the end of the year, they'll have an Awana Awards night. And for those kids who put in the work and the effort, they'll their names will be called out and they'll be able to come up and they'll get a, maybe a ribbon and a trophy or something like that. But you know what? Great, great. That. Uh, those kids earn that. They've worked at it to earn that award. But when, when it comes to grace, grace is the unmerited goodness of God and the love of God to those who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's not an Awana Clubber. Uh, uh, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the, um, let's see here, the undeserving. I could barely read my writing there. Uh, letter B says, mercy, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God's giving us what we do deserve. And what did we deserve? Someone tell me. We deserve death and hell. And, God, and what did God give us? He gave us eternal life. We deserve death and hell, and God gave to us eternal life. Romans 5 and verse 20, the latter part says, but where sin abounded... 
grace did much more abound. I love that. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So what sins have we committed against the Lord? Don't answer out loud. We could go back through our lives and it could be pretty, pretty awful. We all were completely transparent with one another and I see no profit in that. But you know what? If We ought not forget what he has saved us from. But where sin abounded, and it abounded, grace did much more abound. No matter what sin you and I have ever committed in our lives, the grace of God is greater than that. God is gracious. He is gracious. Number six, God is love. God is love. And again, we could preach on this for weeks and months. First uh, John 4 and verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Letter A says, God wants the very best for those he loves. God's love moved him to sacrifice his life for the sake of another. In Romans 8 and verse 32, the Bible says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, think about that. He did not spare his own son because his love for us was so great. Wow, that is amazing love. That is amazing love. Uh, John 3.16, we know that verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his only son to die. I mean, this is amazing. And what is it? It's the love of God. John 15 and verse 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And God wants us to love. How are you doing in the area of love? Hey, young people, are you loving your parents? Are you loving your parents? You can, right? Can you love your parents? Yeah. Um, Jesus talked about, if you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> Uh, we could make a little bit of application for children to their parents. If you love them, keep their commandments. Love, love your parents. Uh, love your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, as church members, right? So God wants us to love. Um, love is putting the welfare of another above our own welfare. Love is putting the welfare of another above one's own welfare. You know, the world's idea of love is usually lust. Love is giving, lust is getting. Lust can't wait to get while, while love can't wait to give. Christians are commanded, think about this, we as believers are commanded to love other believers. That's love. Christians are expected to love their enemies. That was something that troubled me, I think, over the last year and a half. Where I... I I felt it within myself when I was seeing it within the body of believers, this animosity coming out. And it was wrong. The Bible actually commands us to love those who hate us. To love those who persecute us. To love those who do all manner of evil against us. And you, you maybe, maybe you struggled the way I did. Maybe you struggled more than I did or less. But it's easy for us to hate someone or some people who we think are robbing us or hurting us. We're actually to love our enemies. Matthew 5 
verse 43 and following talks about that. We're to love our Lord. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 talks about that. We're to show our love for God by keeping his commandments. And uh, number seven, and this will be our last one for tonight, God is just. God is just. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Job. Would you Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1. I think I have enough time. Job chapter 1. God is just. God is just. And God wants us to be just. Justice is the attribute of God by which he carries out his law. All right. Now, letter A says God is not fair, but he is just. I Googled just today out of curiosity. I, I tried to define the word. I just Googled the word just and a, diction, a number of dictionaries came up and I chose one. And, and the definition within that dictionary for the word just um, was fair. But we, every one of us in this room need to be really thankful that God isn't fair. Okay. Because if God were fair, then uh, my sins deserve death and hell, and it would be fair for me to go to hell. That would be fair. That's what I deserve. Uh, God is just. I'm so thankful he's not fair. Now, let's think about this for just a few minutes. Letter B says there are two sides to the justice of God. Um, number one is remunerative, which is the idea of rewarding that which is right. God is just. He rewards uh, those who do what is right, those who obediently receive Jesus Christ as their substitute are rewarded with Christ's righteousness. Um, there's another side of God's justice, and that's retributive, which means that it's, he punishes that which is wrong. Um, and we're talking about someone who's rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's in John chapter 3 and verse number 18, where it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so there are two sides to God's justice. I once heard a man say that he really believed that this particular moral attribute of God, and, and you'll notice as we've gone through this, well, let me finish my statement. This particular moral attribute of God, he feels is the strongest attribute within our human nature, the way God made us. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That was his surmising. But, you know, all of these graciousness, God made us that way. You, you've been gracious to people. Even unsaved people at times are gracious to other people. Mercy, God made us that way. It's a part of who we are. Uh, made in the image of, of God. Uh, merciful, that, that's something that we have. Sometimes we quench the leading of the Spirit of, of, our, of God in our lives. We're not merciful. We're not gracious. Um, love, love, uh, to a degree, we even see love within the world in which we live. There's some love displayed there. This is the way God created man. So you have these different attributes of God, but this individual made the comment. He said he really feels like justice, um, is the strongest emotion within man. And I really think we kind of got a glimpse into that over the last year and a half, right? Justice. Well, when my justice or my sense of justice is infringed upon, when we, when, when some, when we feel like someone has crossed the line and is hurting us or hurting someone else, maybe you've seen that. Someone was sharing me a story the other day about driving around in, in town and, and he heard a, a lady kind of uh, calling out for help, or maybe I should say it this way, 
uh, telling a guy to back off or get away, and he wasn't. And so this fellow pulled his truck over, and he basically said, hey, no, get away from her. Well, what, what, how was that man responding who pulled his truck over? That was his justice system. This isn't right. Buddy, get away from her. He, he's going to inter intervene, if necessary, to protect someone from being harmed, possibly, by somebody else. And so God's made us this way with the justice system within us. Uh, but the reality is, just like every other one of these attributes of God, keep in mind the mirror, the illustration of the mirror. The image of God in this wicked flesh has been shattered. And our justice system has been shattered as well. Um, and so I, I want I, I ask you to turn to, uh, to to Job, and we'll get there in just a moment. I think of all the counseling that I've done with different couples or individuals. Um, it seems to me that bitterness has been the single greatest issue to overcome. Now, there are other things, but bitterness in America, bitterness is a big deal. And why? Well, we look at situations and we and we're offended for for somebody else. I think I told Pastor Burden a while ago we were talking and I mentioned uh, a movie that I saw as a as a young person. And the setting was the Civil War. And there were a number, number of black soldiers who were allowed to fight for the Union Army. They weren't treated all that great, but they were able to fight. And uh, these, uh, some of these men had been slaves. And I can remember as I watched that movie, I can remember, I mean, everything in my body was on full alert. And if I could have gone back in time and taken up a weapon to fight with them against those who were enslaving them or who had enslaved them, everything in my body wanted to go do that. What was that? I was seeing how they had been offended and my justice system was awakened inside of me. Um, the danger is when our justice system, justice system within us gets out of balance or we're not walking the spirit, it can easily turn into bitterness or unforgiveness. Yeah, we can we can be offended and never forgive and then begin to reap the consequences of that sin within our own lives. One of the things that limits us in our justice system that God is not limited by is our perspective. Right. We have a perspective on something where God he has no perspective. He knows it all. He's he was there when it all happened. He, he knows everything. Another thing that limits our justice system is our, our knowledge of what God is doing. And I, want, and I ask you to turn to Job. Job, um, what do you think was one of the attributes of God that got Job through what he was going through? Just off the top of your head, what do you think? The faithfulness of God to Job? Was, was God faithful to Job? He was. And we know that because God is faithful. I think that would have been hard for Job to think about that, though. I mean, God, Satan comes to, to God and, and uh, God asks Satan, have you considered, have you considered my servant Job? And you know what I think? Well, I know this. God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. I think God knew full well that Satan was considering Job. I think Job bugged Satan. I think he, 
annoyed Satan. Um, but I don't know. I, I think Job could have thought, Lord, I don't know if you're being faithful to me or not. How about another one? What's another attribute of God that you think might have helped Job? And there are many of that I think would apply, but what's some other ones that we think would help Job through the scenario that he went through? His sovereignty. Okay, so he's overall. Somebody else? His love. Okay, that, I think that could have. His long-suffering. God was long-suffering. Job had to be long-suffering. His righteousness. Now, righteousness means what? He always does what is right. That's interesting in this text, and we're not, I'm not going to preach through the whole thing, but we're going to read part of this, and um, what happens? Within about a 10-minute period, as best I understand it, Job lost everything that he owned. He lost his children, seven daughters, seven sons. He lost all of his wealth within about a 10 minute window. The messengers just kept running up to him and he lost everything. The righteousness of God, I think that would be part of it. And I think the justice of God was a part of it, which is a close kin to righteousness. And that, that is this, that Job, and, and we're going to read his words. But what does he say? Um, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now I say to that, I say, wait just a minute, Job. Wait just a minute. Um, the Sabaeans came in. And uh, the Chaldeans came in. Job, it wasn't just God. But you know what Job says? The Lord giveth. And the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, let's look at the passage, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. You know, bitterness is the unresolved violation of our justice system. Nobody is looking out for me. I deserve better than this. Okay, and sometimes we take up the offense of someone else as well. Job 1, in verse 1, says this. There was a man in the, name of Uz, in the land of Uz, what a name, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. And upright, he lived righteously, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now that was Job's reputation in the eyes of men. Now look down to verse number 8. Verse number 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is a none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, this is, this is wonderful. This is awesome. Because how God describes Job at the end of verse number 8 is Job's character. That's, that's who, who God knew Job to be. And that's wonderful, by the way. And it isn't always the case. When our reputation, how men see us, is exactly how God sees us. And it's pleasing to him. Isn't that awesome? You see that in that passage? Now, look back to verse number 2. Verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Verse 3 says, his substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. Now, what did they use camels for in those days? Somebody tell me. Transportation. Does anybody know anybody who has 3,000 cars? Okay, well, my point is that he was wealthy. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she asses, and a very great household. 
so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job might well have been the wealthiest man on the face of the planet. Okay, he was, uh, we think he was a little bit prior to Abraham, but close in that time frame. So very wealthy. Now we might say something like this. Well, obviously, Job, uh, right, he was an upright man. He eschewed evil. He was, he was a mature man. And so, you know what? People who do right always get blessed with a lot of wealth, right? Not necessarily so. Sometimes God blesses with wealth, and sometimes people who hate God have a lot of wealth. Wealth is not a sign of, of, of uprightness or even God's blessing necessarily. But Job was a wealthy man. Now, Satan actually thought the way that I just put it out to you. Um, righteousness, or excuse me, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Look what he says. Look what Satan says to God down in verse number 9. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? In other words, the only way, the only reason, God, that Job fears you is because you've made him rich. Verse 10, Hast not thou made an hedge about him, protected him, and about his house, and about all that he hath in every side? Thou hast blessed the works of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Satan is talking to God here, verse 11, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan had a prosperity gospel mindset, okay? And um, and, he, and he's talking to the Lord here, and he basically says, you, you withdraw your hand from protection from Job, and if he loses everything he has, he'll no longer fear you. He'll curse you to your face, God. Uh, look, if you would, over to verse number 13. Verse number 13. Now I'm going to read down through verse 19. And notice this. One after another, the messengers come. Verse 13 says, And there was a day, one day, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yet they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another, uh, uh, came also another, and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and, the, and said, The Chaldeans made out uh, uh, three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, how, how is Job going to respond to this? Not a single person in this room, not a single one of us has ever gone through a day like this. And there are some in this room, and you and I have gone through hard things. But none of us have gone through a day like this. How does Job respond to this? What is his perspective? Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell, fell down upon the ground. And what? Worshipped? Worshipped? Worshipped God? How can a man worship 
God after losing everything. And I believe he worshipped God because he was praising God for who God was in his justice and righteousness. Look what he says in verse number 21. He says, naked came I out of my mother's womb. What does he mean by that? I I came into this world with nothing. And naked shall I return thither. I'm going to leave with nothing. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And again, I could say to you, well, what about the Sabaeans? They played a role. I mean, these are wicked men, these thieves and these murderers. What about the Chaldeans? These are wicked men, these, these murderers. What about these, these, these men were involved? And the Bible says in verse 22, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Look over to chapter 2, in verse number 7. Satan's not done. Job's lost everything, and Satan comes back to God. The Bible says in verse 7 of Job chapter 2, he says, so, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils. The word sore means terrible boils from the sole of his foot, the bottom of his feet, to the crown on his head. And he took him a pot shirt, a broken piece of pottery, and scraped himself with all. And they would do that to let out the pus from the wounds. And he sat down among the ashes and then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Just tell God, I am not going to serve you anymore. You can do whatever you want. You've, you've taken everything from me. I don't care about you. I don't believe in you. I'm going to live my life for me. You can take my life, whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want. This is what his wife says for him to do. In verse 10, he says, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all this did not Job sin with his lips. What was he saying? His wife was saying, God is not just, Job. God is not righteous, Job. God is not good, Job. And God said, and Job's answer was, no, he is, he is just. And he is good. And he is righteous. Look all the way to the end of the book, if you would. Job chapter 42, and we'll be done. Now, if you read through the book of Job, you'll find that Job, he wrestled with some things. He struggled with some things. It was not smooth sailing. You read the beginning of the book of Job, and you think, wow, that's, I can't relate to Job. If you read through the book of Job, you find that we can relate to him. But while Job struggled and he wrestled with this and what God was doing in his life and why God was doing these things in his life, we come to the end of the book of Job and we find in Job chapter 42, look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Look at verse number 12, or look at verse 11. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before. Now, it's funny, they don't show up until he's been blessed again. And they did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought or had allowed. The word brought means allowed upon him. Did you read that? 
Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. Look at verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep. He only had seven at the beginning of the book. Now he has 14,000. And 6,000 camels. He only had three at the beginning. Now he's got 6,000 cars. And a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first and he goes through the name. I find it interesting here. Job, his perspective when it came to God, God's role and God's working and God, who God was and who God is in his life. His wife said, you need to curse God and die. Curse him because he's not who you thought he was. You can't depend upon him like you thought you could depend upon him. He can't do what you thought he could do. And Job would not do that. He believed God was who he says he is and was. He is just and he is good and he is righteous. He works in the affairs of men and he moves in the affairs of men to do his will in our lives. We can rejoice in him. We don't have much time. But I take one of the attributes of God, and you have them in your notes before you. I want you to take one of the attributes of God, and I want you to make a little application. And I'll start. And I'm going to keep it really simple, and I want you to do the same. But if God is love, and he is, and he wants me to love, then I should love, I should love the world in which I live, the people who live in this world, even the wicked. And I should love my wife. And I should love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, somebody else, give me, name one of these attributes and just tell me what we should do with it. What do you think? Don't overthink it. How about mercy? Help me with mercy. You should be merciful. Full of mercy, not giving them what they deserve. Gracious. Giving other people what they do not deserve. Yeah, he's true. Yeah, my word should be true. I'll take one more if anybody has it. He forgives. He's forgiving. We should forgive. I mean, this is what it, this is what it means to be godly, folks. And we can rejoice in who he is. But when it comes to the moral attributes of God, God doesn't want us just to rejoice in who he is. He wants us to follow him, and, and he's given us his spirit within us to lead us, his words to guide us, to learn of him so we can know this about him, and he wants us to follow him. And, he, and, and this is called godliness. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, there's coming a day... Someday in heaven when he's given us our glorified bodies. That I don't know if there'll be mirrors. I guess the streets of gold are pretty clear. I don't know what kind of reflections there's going to be. But when we look into those reflections, you know, it's not going to be shattered anymore. It's kind of broken right now. This flesh pretty broken. But God wants others to see Christ, God, godliness in us. Let's close with a word of prayer.